Hello and welcome back. I'm Joe. And I'm TJ. And you're listening to Season 5 of Focus Ed Podcast, where we cover all things education to help you lead better and grow faster by staying focused. Focus Ed is a collaborative program of work with our partners from the Delaware Department of Education and Wilmington University. We record each episode with a live audience and then blast them out to you from our website, theschoolhouse302.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and more. Don't forget to follow us at theschoolhouse302.com to learn more about when episodes are recorded and for more school leadership resources. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Focus Ed, and we can't wait to hear from you. Welcome, everyone, to Focus Ed, where we invite expert guests to join us. And in this episode, we have Luke Roberts, as he just said, the Transatlantic Connection being made today. We're excited about that. Luke, thank you for joining us. Thank you for talking to us about leading schools and sustaining innovation. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure. Absolutely. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Luke? Sure thing, Joe. Thanks for that. Dr. Luke Roberts has worked in education in the UK for 20 years to address issues of conflict, bullying, and educational opportunities. He worked on the National Evaluation of Restorative Justice in Schools before becoming a practitioner and trainer. He became increasingly concerned that the whole school approach was not working and did an MBA, MED, and before completing his PhD, exploring schools as complex adaptive systems, something we're going to talk about this evening. This reframing of schools is central to his book and seeks to address the challenge of why innovation does not last in educational settings. He has also worked in communities and prison settings to promote conflict resolution. He joined High Five in the USA to promote sustainable solutions to educational challenges as chief innovation officer. He also advises government departments on systems approaches and is a visiting lecturer at Cambridge University and the Rural College of the Arts. You can follow Dr. Luke Roberts on X, we still say Twitter, at Luke S.H. Roberts. All right, Luke, we're going to get started here. We're going to jump right in. We have copies of your book in the room. We're going to give some away to our live audience. The book is called Leading Schools and Sustaining Innovation, How to Think Big and Differently in Complex Systems. And boy, are our systems complex. First thing here, tell us why you wrote the book and what you want school leaders to take from it. Ooh, great question. Thank you, TJ and Joe, um, for a lovely introduction as well. I think I wrote the book following my PhD and a couple of school leaders I spoke to said PhD is too dense just tell me what I need to know to make change in my school and so the book is really kind of demystifying complex systems hopefully in a much more accessible way and so that school leaders are able to go actually this doesn't have to feel like something that's you know very academic or very theoretical because I think most school leaders end up having to think in systems anyway and have to engage with complexity but there isn't necessarily frameworks that support them with that so the book was there to kind of offer some insights and I've used kind of like practical examples from my own experiences as well to kind of go if you're thinking about a particular issue in a complex system such as um, why does uh, a 
particular behavior amplify? Well, here's an example that I experienced when I was working with a school or within an educational establishment to give it a bit more real world grounding as well. So hopefully school leaders will feel that some of this might feel very familiar, but the framework is something that can really support them going forward. Luke, if you wouldn't mind, because we all agree that the systems are very complex. There's a lot of moving parts in that framework. Can you describe that for us? Break that framework down for us a way that our audience can also have a takeaway? So I'll put it this way. I'll use metaphors, if you like. So I think a lot of managerial leadership is based off of a production line metaphor, which is you can take bits out of the machine, replace different cogs with different types of intervention or initiatives and still produce the same outcomes. That may have been true at a particular point in history. My argument is that schools are probably much more like, like beehives or ants' nests in the sense that the, the whole has a greater sum than the parts, but also it can behave in a very different way as well. So this is why it can be so challenging for school leaders, for school leaders to sustain innovation. If you think in that parts model, you tend to reduce reduce the system down. So you're usually surprised by a system behavior. Whereas if you're thinking much more in a kind of interconnected and interdependent way, you tend to recognize that there are going to be pushbacks in the system, as well as opportunities that may not be planned for, but may be very vital to the health and well-being of the systems you're engaging with. I think that's a really good way to think about the difference between the machine and the beehive. You can replace the parts of the machine. The beehive is more interconnected. Is there another way to think about that in terms of systems thinking, you talk about the complexity of the system in terms of why it doesn't work very well for sustaining innovation. I'd like to pick that apart just a little bit. I get the part about the cogs, but what else is it about these systems? I'm thinking about bureaucracy, layers, some of the things that get in our way and why the innovation doesn't stick. Let's go down that road a little bit. Okay. So in my early research, I was looking at a school that had high levels of deprivation and high levels of exclusion. And they said, we're really going to make a difference. And what started to occur to me was to apply networks and not like networks as who's in the network, but there's like particular shapes. And I talk about this in the book. And one of the most classic forms of network shape is a hub and spoke model. So you have your leader in the middle and then they delegate out to the spokes. And what really started to strike me was that this particular school leader, if she left that school, all of the change she'd been talking about would just crumble because it was all centered on her. And so, you know, this is very rare that it happens in research, but like six months later, she left the school and exactly what I said would happen had predicted did that the whole internet um, interventions that were there to try and address inequality and to, to address exclusion all disappeared and the school became one of the most the highest excluding schools in that particular area and so when we're thinking about innovation we can sometimes center on the person but what i'm more interested in is when the system has particular network shapes those can be shapes that inhibit innovation and kill sustainability so what you end up with is like hub replacement constantly rather than thinking well if i change the shape of the network outside of that hub and spoke mode and might create new links, new ways of communicating and therefore more ways to innovate and hopefully sustain in the future. Luke, to dig into that a little more, because I think that makes perfect sense to a lot of people. The hub and spoke is one of the most, you know, prominent models, you know, but it's so dependent on the individual and it doesn't set up the system to be successful, which in turn, then the students aren't successful. And ultimately it, it doesn't see opportunities on many levels and doesn't, you know, let 
other people within the system, you know, thrive? Have you identified some models or some networks that are really making a difference that it's not person dependent? Yeah, absolutely. Great question as well. So I think there's two things in there. So this is when my my beehive model kind of breaks down a bit, which is humans are much more power centric than bees, we could possibly argue. And so therefore, when you have someone who likes to be the hub, likes to be the center of things, it becomes very hard for that type of leader to let go because what they're scared of is potentially order without control. Like systems can organize themselves into an orderly fashion without someone having to go, you need to do this and you need to do that. So there is something about the style of leadership that needs to change when you're thinking in systems. And also I would say the second part of that is if you start to change the network and allow more people to participate. So if you think about succession planning in schools, like how many leaders actually think about the next generation that's going to come behind them and how do you start to build them into a network so that you can start to go right what do they want to do that would innovate how could they be supported so you move away from this hub and spoke model and you can start to change the network shape into something that's much more connected so if you think about like a fisherman's net for example where everybody is connected to everything else you have a lot higher level of sustainability but you also have a lot more communication between the people in the network and that I think gets to the point that you were really hinting at which is then people can start to thrive because they've got access to the network and they've got accesses to the resources in that network as well. You make a point though, if I'm reading this correctly, that it does require the leader to give the power away because it doesn't revolve around the leader as much as it would with that, you know, egotistical model running in the background that everything's all about us. I'll put it slightly differently and I'll say in the production line, you tend to rise because of seniority of experience. So the person who knows the most about the production line is usually in charge. Whereas if you're thinking about schools as an ecosystem, then you're much more as a kind of a gardener or as a facilitator. You're looking at what needs to be supported, what needs energy, what needs to be killed off sometimes because legacy interventions in schools suck up a lot of time and energy, but no one has the heart to like rip them up and get rid of them. So it's much more of a, a change in kind of mindset about how do I facilitate and nurture the system as opposed to how do I control it and how do I just kind of like pull levers and hope that these things will happen over time. Well, you're you're definitely saying it nicer than I am, but I'm going to say that some of that, that production mind is at the center of things. The gardener is really helping others to flourish and things to grow outside of what they have total control over. Absolutely. And as a gardener, you will leave a legacy of change. You'll leave a healthier system than what you found, hopefully. Whereas if we're in our production line thing, the job is just to keep the system going, no matter how bad it is, no matter how poor the outcomes are. If we're in that kind of mindset, it's just like, I've done my job. If I can leave it in the state, I kind of found it. So again, I think this is where there is a real mindset and identity shift that can come with being a systems leader. Luke, I think conceptually this makes sense. I think most people agree that, especially when schools, when there is a solid network, we rely on so many people. That's what makes it complex from the classroom to the custodian. I am wondering what are some steps someone could take to start, you know, moving in this direction of the beehive or the net if they're in a system where it's the hub and spoke model. And we have a diverse audience. Some 
humanness audience is the hub and some are the spoke. So how can you start to approach this knowing that, okay, we need to change the system. What's a step forward that we could take? Think of a problem that requires a system solution. And that can be anything. So like some of the work I've been doing at the moment has been looking at how do we improve retention in our schools? We say multi-academy trust in the UK, you might say districts. And so think about something that's at a systems level that needs addressing. So no one perspective is going to hold the answer to that particular challenge you're thinking of. That's when you're starting to go, right, how can we then think about who else has perspectives that we need to hear from? Where are some of the potential blind spots that we have where we haven't spoken to anyone? So that might be exactly what we said, like the custodian or the parent or you know the, the school bus driver who has a different perspective on that same system. So then how do you start to collate and gather those perspectives together to say, right, are we getting a better understanding of what is driving the present system behavior that we know is a challenge? And the key to that, I think, is doing it in a way that isn't tokenistic, that isn't asking people for their opinion without providing feedback into the system to say your opinion matters and we need your help to participate to move the system in a different direction. That would be a really good starting point, I would suggest. We've heard that before on this show. A perspective seeking is the first step. And I'm going to underscore something that you said there is really telling people that their perspective matters, that feedback cycle. Because just because we asked doesn't necessarily prompt people to feel that we're going to do something with the information that they provide or that we even really care what they're saying. Exactly. So years ago, I worked in an organization where they did a bullying survey of staff and it was like 54% of staff said they felt bullied in that organization. So the next year, they just didn't run the survey. <laughs> like in their mind, problem solved. So really tokenistic gestures often get seen and therefore people disengage more with the problem. So then the person who comes afterwards has to work twice as hard to try and get that engagement going again. So this is why understanding perspectives is crucial, but also thinking about how that can lead to meaningful action at a systems level is really important as well. So not just kind of going back to let's write a, an action plan or let's find a particular intervention. It's thinking much more long term, changing your time horizon of when the system will change as opposed to the individual or the situation. Yeah, it's like saying, if I close my eyes, you can't see me. Exactly. Often we become so familiar with our systems that we stop seeing the issues there because we're just too familiar. And this is where I think having those different perspectives becomes invaluable because it can like reawaken fresh eyes into, well, what is really going on here? What has become normalized or what have we become desensitized to that needs to be addressed in this system? That's an excellent point. I was just going to chime in. We did an activity in my district, a management challenge, and I probably could have done a better job of setting the entire stage, but really it comes from James Clear's work. And if you can do something in three steps, you know, don't do it in five. But to your point, Luke, many of the teams reach back out to me because they couldn't even see some of the challenges that need to be addressed because we're too immersed in the work. And it's just, it is interesting. Sometimes we have to zoom out to see really what's going on and take a different perspective and ask those individuals who don't have our perspective. Absolutely. And I think I would say zoom out, but also recognize history. Because I think, again, with our production line metaphor, it assumes that there is no history. You've just got today's problem. And when you start to think in that systems, systems have a behavior that has occurred, a pattern that is occurring through time that has got you to that present state. So really understanding and validating history is really important because otherwise you probably make the same mistakes time and time again. So there is a bit about the zoom out, but also recognize how long has 
this been a challenge in the system? Why hasn't it been addressed before? And who holds some of that memory of what was there in the past? Yeah, I, I was taking a note on that, the zooming out part, but also the validation of the history of the school, the history of the system, the organization. That matters. That's also part of the perspective seeking. This has been, I think, interesting conversation about systems thinking here and taking that approach. I do want to address one thing, though, before we get to some additional leadership questions, school leadership questions that our audience loves, which is you address this need or this problem, I would say, with getting theory into practice. And you started the conversation here today about a little bit less of an academic framework for people to digest and be able to use. Can you tell us why you think that's such a problem in education that we can't get? We have such great theories, theories of change, but also theories of how to do the work better, but yet the problems persist. I mean, this is something that Joe and I talk about often. We have a good way to do it, a better way to do it, a different way to do it, but we keep doing it the same old way. I'm going to be a bit controversial and say systems thinking doesn't necessarily correspond with theories of change because theories of change presumes a linear input-output. We're back to our production line model of evaluation to evaluate a production line. Whereas if we're thinking in a systems lens, then we have to find creative new ways to understand the indicators of change that are happening in the system itself. And often this is where I think the innovation bit comes in that although it might be hard to see your system, once you've mapped it out and understand it, it is often the people in the system that know best what change feels like and are often the least asked what would be the indicators of success or indicators of systems change that would really matter to you. So I think there is a bit around the challenge of academically, it feels like you can objectify things as opposed to recognize that systems are always interconnected. Even the research, and this is what I learned in my PhD, even as a researcher, I am part of that system when I'm asking questions at that moment, because those might be questions that have never been asked to those leaders or to those teachers before. And therefore I am instigating change. We tend to play the myth of objectivity, which is no, actually I'm stepping back as if social science is done in a laboratory and it's not at all. And so I think one of the challenges in what you're asking is that probably academia hasn't necessarily caught up with systems thinking either and tends to apply very linear, very objective models to situations that don't necessarily require it or adapt too fast for the researchers to be able to keep up or the academics to be keeping. One reason uh, Michael Fullan's work resonated with me early on in my career because he touted that change is messy. Like somebody maybe like John Cotter where change is linear. And I tend to think that it's messy. It's hard. And a plan, I go back to Mike Tyson, his famous quote, everybody has a plan until they get, you know, punched in the face. And so it, that, you know, we hopefully that doesn't happen literally, but um, it can happen for sure. So there's two points in there. So I think there's a danger of planning to plan, which is the system maintaining its status quo because everyone so focuses too much on writing the plan rather than taking action. There's that part. And then the second thing is that actually once you engage with a system, it will push back. And so most change models don't anticipate the way in which the system will push back. And it, the direct in your face pushback, no, I disagree with you. That is one form of system pushback, but there's a more subtle one, which I find absolutely fascinating when I was doing work around restorative approaches, which was schools would claim to be restorative and they would be highly punitive, but they just adopted the language of restorative practice or restorative justice, if you like. And so it soothes the professional by saying, look, I've now adopted this language, but they haven't actually fundamentally changed the behavior. And so it's the equivalent of kind of like an icing on a cake. You can put any intervention you like on that cake, but if the cake still remains a punitive, static, status quo driven, 
an organization, all you've got is this nice veneer on the outside, but the fundamentals haven't really changed. And that can be really difficult for leaders to unpick, particularly if the timescales are too short. And especially if the work becomes more gratifying because we changed our language versus effective. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're calling, we talked with you before about that. We're calling it something different. We say it's a restorative circle. Really, it's a suspension intake meeting. And that's the system adopting language. And, and I don't want to say people are colluding with it, but again, it, it becomes so normalized that you kind of go, yeah, well, that is what it is. That's the restorative circle. But from the perspective of the child or the parent, it's absolutely not. But again, are there voices being heard? Or is that like the fifth meeting that day that needs to get done? Exactly. And beehives are not linear organizations. No, far, far from. No, it's fascinating. Let's ask a couple questions that we have in our school leadership bank here that people love to know the answers to, starting with, if you were going to improve the student experience in every school, what would you want to see done? I think I'd want to see a greater focus on young people's futures and more discussion about what they would like to be in the world. And so I know there's like big shifts around AI and technology, but I think for a lot of the young people, particularly the young people I've worked with in, we call them pupil referral units where children get excluded in the UK. Often they don't have a strong sense of identity and they have very, very little sense of what they could do in the future. And therefore their paths are often hijacked by others. So I think to improve the student experience, really understanding what they could be, what their potential would look like and how to help them build paths to that future. Yeah, Luke, I would say that's a problem here as well in America, for sure. Students who often are derailed by their own behavior, by whatever circumstances exist, they don't see school as purposeful, as leading them to somewhere. It's usually happening to them. But in my experience, and even talking with a lot of kids as well, you see that happening in their whole life. Everything is happening to them and their behaviors, even if they're you know, bad behaviors or wrong behaviors or against the code of conduct or even criminal on some lens, that is a source of control for them in some manners. And it's hard to get there and even for them to see that, but helping them understand how school is a vehicle for something better is a very long road. And it goes back to my kind of one of my key points, which is that often the time horizons in schools are shrinking because everything has this sense of urgency that it needs to be done today, including conversations about young people's futures staff well-being and so the opportunity to expand this becomes really important i remember a young man who i worked with years ago came up to my mum and went how's luke and she went oh how do you know luke and he said he's the only person who ever asked me where do i want to be in five years time and i'd never thought about that question excellent you can never underestimate a simple question making a difference in someone's right. kids want to know you care bottom line your work is incredible we're huge fans second time on the show for you to feel like you're making an impact what does the next three to five years look like for you? What what would you like this done professionally on your end, but also in schools? I mean, we're talking about outcomes. We're talking about change. One of the largest frustrations among a lot of educators is they feel like they are on a treadmill without going anywhere, just exhausted. And so what does that look like for you in three to five years? I think I would really like to see educators being creative and having opportunities to be creative. And, to, and this is going to sound weird, 
to play, but not to be playful, if that makes sense. So like play with concepts, play with ideas, because I think there's a real power in that. And where I've seen professionals in schools have those opportunities, those safe spaces to be creative, it has a real energizing effect, not just on them as a group, as a network, but also on the way in which they think about changing their school, the way in which they think about relationships in their school, and also some of the most creative things that come out of those conversations are things that I never would have thought of. I was like, wow, like that's really clever. I don't even think there's any research on that with some of the things that I've heard. But it shows that that if you can change the metaphor, you can really unlock people's creative potential. And I think doing more of that, particularly in places where there is such difficulties and such challenge, that tends to go out the window, first of all, and you end up with like, you know, what's the action plan? What do we need to do over the next month? Everything gets narrowed and you lose that ability to be playfully creative. And that's one of the things that definitely kills innovation. Yeah, I want to be hopeful about that, Luke, but I also know how rigid the system is in terms of what the day, how the day unfolds. You arrive, students are often there five to 10 minutes after you're there. You're teaching class after class. You have a short maybe planning period. Maybe you have a PLC period that could be used for some of that creativity. But I wonder how we inject that into the system and where the space is to say, take a risk, be creative, don't worry so much. And we want to hear uh, your creative juices pumping when bookend to bookend, the thing's got to run. The buses are going to show up and they're going to pick the kids up at the end of it. Do you think about that in terms of the way we use time and apply teachers' time? I'm just curious idea and I, I'm hopeful that we can do some of those things. We've seen them in some schools and some systems, but man, is it rigid. Like, it took me ages to figure out how to talk about time in systems. So I think there's a couple of things in there. So firstly, time is connected to boundaries. So even in what you're saying, there are boundaries there and so the ability to play with boundaries or to give permission to play with boundaries changes the space which changes the way in which people perceive time in it and so that's crucial and I think that's where leaders play such a pivotal role which is if you want a more creative staff how do you create the conditions for creativity because the danger is you get back to our tokenistic point which is I want a more creative well-being healthy staff and yet the structures of the day the boundaries of the day absolutely undermine that so I think there's how the leaders create the conditions and then how the leaders feel that they are also connected to networks that allow them to have that type of permission as well. Because one of the biggest challenges we're facing in the UK is an issue around teacher retention at the moment. So there is something clearly wrong in our system where people want to be in this profession and yet they're not staying about. And part of that reason is because the, the mechanistic structures are kicking in, they're dehumanising people, they're making them feel that it's a chore rather than a vocation. And so, again, this is where leaders, both individually and collectively, can have a network effect on the education system that we want to create in the future. It's a great answer. I think you're spot on, Luke. I think a lot of people feel that way. I would include administrators very often in that as well. Feel just that they're working within certain confines, that they know that is the, the box I've been placed in. I do also think, though, when we talk about, you know, building a culture, asking the user, talk to teachers, see, see what they say, talk to your paraprofessionals, where could they find time? Because there are some rigid structures that we're not going to be able to avoid. We know standardization on many levels is great because we want, you know, schools, regardless of where they are, regardless of socioeconomic status and so on, to be level set. However, it does come with a cost and that cost very often is independence. And then it just, as it fleshes out, you know, people like to do things and prescribe curriculum and and so on. 
So I think asking the user at different points of the year might be a way just to start that conversation. Absolutely. And I'd also say an opportunities for reflective practice. If everything is moving fast and everything has a sense of urgency, when do people have a moment to step out of that flow of time, if you like, and go like, look at what we've achieved this year. And if we actually slowed time down a bit, what could we do that would be really creative to help with the next steps? And I think that reflective time is often undervalued and kind of seen as a bit tokenistic. Whereas if it's done with genuine intent, psychological safety, with an authentic reason to challenge a system issue, then I think you can use those pockets of time in really creative and exciting ways. And the more pockets that happen, the more time will start to become a system feature. We could probably talk about that time, student time, the teacher day, the hours of the week for a whole podcast here. And maybe we'll do a round three with you that would be on that topic. And I think it's an answer to a question that we often ask, which is somebody's got to write about that. Somebody's got to, to break that down. Our days, our minds, the learning of our students is only limited by the structures of time that we, we put in schools. And we've got to break those boundaries down, as you've said. This has been a fantastic interview. I can't help myself but to ask, are there any resources, books to read, people to follow who you recommend on a regular basis? We're going to give your book away. And obviously, everybody's going to follow you who listens to this. But any resources that you recommend or people to follow? I don't know. I think, all right, this is going to sound a bit like the Matrix. Like, But once you start to see systems, it's really hard to unsee them. And so, because there's Martin Luther King Day on Monday, and I was listening to a couple of his talks and interviews, and I was like, I just hear him talking in systems now. And so I think it gives you a lens to look at people and to really kind of go, actually, I didn't think that they would were talking about systems, but then it, it just clicks in your mind. You go, oh, yeah, they are. So, you know, keep that in mind. Um, a couple of people to read. I'm really into Bernard Suits, The Grasshopper. It's my favorite book at the moment. I've read it like three times. And it's he's talking about games. And I hear systems when he's talking about games and how do we use games for collaboration or conflict and how do we define games. It absolutely blows my mind his writing. So it's, prob it's probably out there. It's well worth a read. And in terms of podcasts and things to listen to, I, I don't know, like I end up listening to like really strange things like about black holes and kind of going, oh, you know, what is the equivalent of a black hole in a school? Um, that's how my mind works. So I think just explore systems as much as possible to, is my honest answer. Thank you for that. This has been fantastic. Luke, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Is there anything else that you would like to add a question we didn't ask a request of the audience? I think in terms of thank you all for being here, first of all, really enjoyed it. I guess a question I'd like the audience to ponder would be if you're thinking about change, a lot of the time I hear people put the problem in a deficit. So we want to reduce something. And I'd ask you to flip it and think about, well, what is it that needs to increase in the system for that change to happen? That's fascinating. What yeah, could we reduce versus what we need to increase versus what we should reduce? And we think as reductionists often. Well, thank you, Luke. You've heard it here on Focus Ed. Dr. Luke Roberts, everyone have it a virtual and live round of applause from our audience behind us here. As always, don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. 
Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful, and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.